Welcome to Earth Matters, environmental justice stories from Australia and around the world. Produced on Wurundjeri land at 3CR's studios in Fitzroy, Victoria, and broadcast across this continent on the Community Radio Network. I'm Tisha Nahern. Environment East Gippsland set a legal precedent in 2009 when they successfully sued Vic Forests in the Supreme Court of Victoria. Since then, a swag of endangered species of flora and fauna have been discovered in Vic Forest's logging coops, thanks to the work of citizen scientists. So, Environment East Gippsland are back in the Supreme Court, taking Vic Forests to task. I spoke with Jill Redwood about the case. Yes, well, this is our eighth legal case, um, and all the others we've... Um, other than the, the one that was settled in the Supreme Court for Brown Mountain... The others have been settled out of court to our satisfaction um, and this one seems like it will actually go back to court again. So what we are doing now is even though Vic Forest are supposed to do surveys for endangered animals and various um, you know, rare and threatened species and values that should be protected by law, we believe that's not happening. Um, it's not happening you know, adequately. Uh, they claim they do surveys, but I think mostly that's just sitting at a desk looking at a computer. Um, so this time we have actually got evidence, thanks to the citizen science work of um, Gecko and a lot of volunteers that have gone out, done, gone out and done these surveys themselves. And they've actually found a lot of endangered wildlife that Vic Forests should have found and should have protected before they started logging. So it is a bit of a worry that this has been going on since Vic Forests were first born, I suppose, back in 2004, and it's only recently that we are picking up on what's been going on. So uh, I hate to think of all the losses in that in that time and how our endangered species is just going down the gurgler at a rapid rate. So, um, yeah, as I said, thanks to the work of the citizen scientists, we've now got evidence um, of what we believe should have been happening but wasn't. So uh, we are challenging Vic Forest in court um, and trying to get them to pull up their socks, I suppose. Now, it's uh, currently in the court, so I understand that you can't necessarily talk about all the details of the case, but can you just uh, explain to us what, it, what grounds uh, are you taking Vic Forest to the Supreme Court on? There's a number of issues. Um, one is rainforest logging. Um, two is the protection of of protected species like the yellow-bellied glider and the greater glider, the little endangered long-footed potteroo, which like, is like a mini kangaroo, um, only lives on fungi on the forest floor. There's a couple of endangered, or newly described actually, um, fish species, the galaxia species, and then there's the crayfish. Um, there's also been a rare fern discovered that's never been described in East Gippsland before, or never been um found to occur here before. Uh, there's the rare overlap rainforests, there's the uh, endangered plant species like the blackfellas hemp and the slender tree fern. All of these, there's quite a few actually on the list that we believe are not being adequately, well, one, identified and then two, protected. So these are the um, issues that we are wanting to get, it, get in court and um, have the courts actually... Tell us really what is going on and what should be going on or what's not going on that should be. 
And so just to go back to the point that you made previously, you were saying that uh, Vic Forests is consistently seems to be failing to survey proposed logging coops and that it seems that often they're simply looking at uh, maps or aerial photos from a from a computer rather than actually going uh, on the ground and doing their own surveying on the ground of these coops that they're that they're logging. Pretty well. Um, they, they log sort of you know, dozens, uh, if not hundreds, of coops and each year, and they they decide which ones they need to survey. So it's really up to them to say, no, nah, we don't think there's anything in here worth um, worth worrying about. We don't think there's any values here. We won't bother. They tell the public they survey every coop. They don't tell the public that what they do is just sit at their computer and do an overlay of, um, you know, a threatened species map. And uh, <laughs> the other thing they don't tell us is that those threatened species maps, which is called the Victorian Biodiversity Atlas, are 12, 15, some of them 20 years out of date with the records. They are not being put in. So it, it is totally pointless putting the... Um, Victorian Biodiversity Atlas overlay over their planned coops because it tells you nothing and a lot of those um, previously identified rare and endangered wildlife and plants have not been entered as data on that thing. So it's totally obsolete and um, that's what needs to happen is the government needs to put more funds into that so at least we know where these things are being found and what values we have. But just by Vic Forest saying they survey every coop... um, at their desk mainly, then they say they go in and eyeball it. Well, that can be just leaning out of the car window and saying, nah, nah, nothing here. Um, Only where there happens to be over a hectare of modelled old growth, and this is by the government's definition of old growth, and we believe that, again, is very narrow, um, they might deem that there needs to be a survey in there. And even when they do have a survey and they employ contractors, um, trained uh, ecologists to go in and have a look, we believe that they are giving them such minimal time and funds to do it that they really don't have the time to do decent surveys in the right seasons for you know the full range of species that could occur in these areas. So that's why, and probably very conveniently for those who happen to have a commercial interest in getting as much wood as they can out of public land, public forests, um, that's why they hardly ever find anything. And uh, it's members of the public that have to go in and do this work for them, and it's um, causing quite a quite a concern amongst the, uh, the the logging industry and Vic Forest, I'd say. So as a uh, grassroots community environment organisation, how are you able to uh, engage in in legal action with Vic Forests, a government-owned logging corporation, um, who obviously have all the backing of the state government? Um, You know, certainly there's quite quite a disparity in resources and and power there. (laughs) Yes, you hit the nail on the head with that one. Um, When we first decided that, you know, everything... um, that we'd tried wasn't working and uh, Vic Forest were planning to go in and, and destroy another stand of beautiful old growth forest that we knew had, you know, multiple threatened values in there and, and wildlife. Vic Forest pretty well thumbed their nose at us and said, well, yeah, what are you going to do about it? Um, and we didn't have much money in the bank, as most small environment groups don't. But we thought, you know, we can't afford it, but, by oh, geez, we can't afford not to. 
Um, but as soon as we we got the injunction and started the ball rolling, there was just so much support right throughout Victoria, right throughout Australia, actually, that donations just rolled in, and we managed to um, see that court case through, which which was very long, very drawn out. We had about five or six threatened species, so that cost us a lot for expert witnesses and surveys and, and whatnot. Um, cost hundreds of thousands, as anybody who may have done a full-blown court case <laughs> may realise. Uh, but in the end, we won, so a lot of that money came back to us, which has been used as a, a sort of an enduring legal fund, and um, we've been able to also challenge them on a number of other fronts too, um, which has set precedents for the way things should be done um, with forest management. It's still not perfect by a long, long way, but... Uh, you know, we're at least keeping an eye on them and they know they're being watched and, um, yeah, hopefully it's making life a little bit harder for them to just r- ride roughshod over the laws and um, just sort of, you know, you or I would have to adhere to the law, but it seems to us that Vic Forest seem to be able to get away with it every everywhere they go. So we're hoping that with our legal cases now... We're still needing um, still needing donations, of course, because every time you do a case, you don't always get your your costs back, and certainly not 100% of your costs. So we're still needing to keep topping up our legal fund to be able to keep operating um, this way. And uh, thankfully, it's you know, it's Environment East Gips land that has taken the risk, I suppose, to do this where other groups wouldn't, especially the larger groups. Um, they probably have too much to lose. Whereas uh, we think, you know, somebody's got to do it and we've had pretty well, we've got a, a, a good record, um, seven out of seven so far or six out of six and we're still still going through the seventh at the moment, still finalising that and now we've taken this eighth, eighth legal case on the um, the forest in the Kuark block in East Gippsland. And you mentioned the Victorian Biodiversity Atlas uh, which is now out of date and, and, and really incomplete. The Victorian government is releasing the state budget uh, as we speak. Now, there seems to be some contradictions in, in the state government's uh, funding for, for initiatives, environmental and, and logging initiatives in, in the budget. They're saying that there's no money for an update of the of the of Victoria's Biodiversity Atlas, yet it seems like they're able to fund a whole lot of other uh, logging and and hunting uh, initiatives. Can you tell us about that? Oh yes, <laughs> yes. Uh, this really makes me angry. But um, when I was trying to talk with the minister's office and the department bureaucrats a little while ago, saying, "Look, your biodiversity atlas is totally obsolete, totally useless. You know, it needs to be updated. You need to employ six people to work on it full time to get it up to speed, to get it up to date." They they sort of admitted that yes, it was an issue, but they didn't have any funds to do that. Here they go, though. It costs $30 million of our taxes a year to see our forests burnt, which is destroying our biodiversity, and it's been proven that it's useless. They've just given, was it $5.3 million to the shooters' lobby, um, another $6 million to drop poison baits from an aeroplane over our forest to try and kill off wild dogs. That is not the way to do it. They might as well throw $100 bills out of the airplane window. 
Um, the logging industry is constantly subsidised year after year after year. You know, the fossil fuel industry gets millions of subsidies. You name it. The exploiters seem to have money just handed to them every year. Um, but the environment and a lot of our parks and reserves and our research just seems to keep getting cuts. So I'd be really interested to see what happens in um, this year's budget for Victoria. We're hoping that there is a decent amount of money put aside to start looking after our biodiversity and our threatened species and our environment. But when you have the big exploiters that seem to have so much influence over governments, or whether it's with you know factions or unions or political donations, um, you know it, we just never seem to get ahead for our environment. That seems to be what's always paying to keep their um, political donors happy. Now, this year is an election year, federally, and February marked 19 years uh, since the signing of the Regional Forest Forestry Agreement, uh, which uh, enshrined uh, exemption from Commonwealth uh, environmental protection laws for logging. Uh, Environment East Gippsland has spoken out about this. Can you give us a bit of a history of that and, and what the environmental effects, the impacts of the regional forestry agreement uh, has been over the last 19 years. Yeah, it's pretty appalling, that agreement. In fact, it's more of a disagreement than a a regional forest agreement. I think even the unions pulled out of that in disgust. Um, So it's really just an agreement between the federal and state governments. Nobody else, I think most of the stakeholders, just were appalled by it. Um, It was supposed to really let the federal government off the hook because um, they were seeing forests as a real nuisance. Every election, forests would come up, and it was the federal government that that granted the export licences to, you know, log and chip and ship our our publicly owned native forests. They wanted that off their plate because it was just a headache for them. So they decided that they should hand all of the um, decision-making powers to the state. And the state agreed with that. I think they probably got some money out of it as well. And so the federal government just wiped their hands of having to deal with forests at all. And that included anywhere there was a federally listed threatened species um, that may or may not have had a recovery plan written for it, i.e. laws that should be adhered to, to to ensure that it survives and thrives. Uh, even where that was happening... Um, they could still log those areas and not have to adhere to federal law. And so things like our endangered uh, spot-tailed quoll, like a, a spotted, um, spotted you know, marsupial cat, I suppose, it's our largest carnivorous mainland marsupial, really, really in dire straits now, um, that's still being logged. It's still having its habitat destroyed. It's still being burned. And yet because of this regional forest agreement that was signed they don't have to do anything about it and it's the same with a lot of other species that are listed federally um a state government as long as they've got an rfa in place they say they don't have to uh get get permission from the federal government to destroy the habitat or interfere with it so yes that's been uh, a, a real a real disaster for our environment and often our state environment laws are pretty weak as well. So when you've got weak state environment laws and um, the federal government have just <laughs> given them, granted them exemptions from any, from any federal law, 
then my God, it, it doesn't look good for our for our biodiversity and our wildlife. And as we're approaching 20 years of the agreement, is it up for renegotiation? And what is Environment East Gippsland calling for? Uh, we just want the RFA scrapped altogether. It's been a disaster. It hasn't worked. Um, you know, all the things they said that the RFA was to do has not happened, except it's increased the wood chip, um, wood chip sales to overseas buyers, to the paper mills. Uh, <laughs> but as far as protecting the environment, no, it has not done anything in that regard. So we just want it scrapped. I think the federal, federal government wants to roll it over without any sort of assessment or review, how convenient for the logging industry. Um, and when they do have a little bit of public consultation, it is just tokenism. It's just wasting our time. They say, thank you very much, take the papers and our comments and um, do what they plan to do anyway. It's just a formality. So, yeah, we are calling for the whole thing to be scrapped and a whole new agreement um, brought into play which really looks after our environment rather than the wood chippers and the loggers and, you know, those that benefit from, benefit from exploiting our forests. Jill Redwood from Environment East Gippsland. To follow the progress of their legal challenge and to find out how you can support the campaign to protect East Gippsland's native forests, you can sign up to their mailing list or find their page on Facebook. You're listening to Earth Matters. Environmental Justice Stories on the Community Radio Network. Now, from the forests to the oceans. The mass bleaching event of the Great Barrier Reef has made headlines internationally. Surveying the scale and severity of the bleaching has been a massive undertaking for researchers. To find out how it was done, Claire, from 3CR's Lost in Science program, spoke with James Kerry, Project Manager of the National Coral Bleaching Task Force. Okay, well, there's kind of two prongs to the surveying that we're doing. I've been involved directly with the aerial surveying, which has involved helicopters and light aircraft. Um, We've been flying at about 500 feet, and so far we've surveyed 766 reefs, and we're able to generate a score based on the bleaching severity for each reef. That's a way of covering a large area quite quickly. The other prong is the boats our research vessels that are going out to different sections of the reef and that's involving multiple organizations and they're doing in-water surveys so they're diving and they're getting much more detailed information on particularly like which species of corals are bleaching and the extent of the bleaching and they're also helping to validate the aerial surveys that we've been doing. Each reef that you do an aerial survey on will then be then be backed up with a more in-depth analysis We are very unlikely to be able to in-water survey each reef that has been aerial surveyed, but certainly um, we're doing our best to get as many regions of the Great Barrier Reef as possible. I think we'll cover all the regions um, with a sample of reefs from from each region. Importantly, what, what are you seeing out there at the moment? From the air, it's been quite serious what we've been seeing. So from about Port Douglas north, We surveyed 520 reefs and we saw uh, extensive bleaching. We only saw four reefs that had no bleaching of any kind. And most of the reefs that we saw, we were scoring in categories three and four. And they're the highest bleaching categories on our scale. So a category four is 60% or more of all the coral bleached on that reef. That's extremely extensive bleaching. It is. And, And if you compare it to the 1998 and 2002 bleaching events, 
on the Great Barrier Reef, it's quite a bit more severe. Um, the number of corals that are in that, that category three and four is about three and four times, sorry, the number of reefs is about three or four times more than we were seeing in those previous mass bleaching events. And is it consistent up and down the Great Barrier Reef or is it worse at different parts? Yeah, as I mentioned, it's very severe north of Port Douglas. And then you enter a sort of transition zone from Port Douglas down to round about Mackay, Townsville region, where you're still getting moderate levels of bleaching. And, you know, this is now probably two-thirds of the reef that have some degree of bleaching. And in the south, it's, it's improving, thankfully, where we're seeing much, much lower levels or no bleaching at all on most reefs. And why has this summer been the worst ever for coral bleaching? We've got two issues really that are are relevant here. The first is that baseline temperatures are going up year on year or certainly decade on decade as a result of climate change. So corals are already facing a temperature uh, environment that is higher than they would have been facing 50 years ago. And what happened this summer is that we had El Nino that causes a spike in summer temperatures. And that spike has pushed corals outside their pretty thermally sensitive range. And it's just pushed them to the point that they've flipped and they've bleached. And when that happens, to explain it to to your listeners who who might not be aware, corals have um, an an algae that we call zooxanthellae that live within them, and that's what gives them their color. Mm. And when they get too hot, the relationship with that algae breaks down, and the coral actually expels the algae. So all you see is the white skeleton that's left behind through the see-through tissue. And that's what we call coral bleaching. And can a coral survive without having that relationship with the algae? For most coral, the algae are their primary source of energy. They photosynthesize and provide the coral with energy. So they're effectively starving once they're bleached. And it depends from species to species. Some will die within days of being bleached. Others can last for months. And we're still sort of generating data or getting surveys, reports back on the levels of mortality that are occurring as a result of this bleaching. And that's going to be ongoing for several months as a result of this event. But certainly based on the severity of the event, um, I don't want to put a number on it, but we would expect quite high mortality, particularly in the north. James Carey, Project Manager of the National Coral Bleaching Task Force. Mackay, on the central Queensland coast, has historically been the centre of Queensland's sugar industry, and more recently, coal mining and export. Both these industries have caused damage to the Great Barrier Reef. The Mackay Conservation Group have been campaigning for years to protect the reef. In the wake of the recent bleaching event, they are working in their community to make sure the reef can't be ignored this federal election. My name is uh, I'm Tony Fonts, and I'm, among other things, um, a, a diver on the Great Barrier Reef, currently working with the Mackay Conservation Group on their reef campaign. Climate change, without a doubt, is the greatest threat to the reef, and that's a quote from the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park Authority, the main management agency. It's a relatively new threat to the reef, though, and there are a number of legacy issues that start way back when Queensland was first settled in, say, 1860, and water quality has been probably the most serious of these legacy issues because as Queensland developed through grazing and farming, such as sugarcane, the water quality of the reef was impacted significantly by the runoff, first from the grazing where you get a lot of sedimentation because all the trees are chopped down, and then by the, the, the farming where a lot of farm chemicals, such as fertilizers and pesticides, find their way out to sea. And the sediments and the, and the chemicals have... Uh, 
pretty bad effect on corals, as you can imagine. So over the hundreds of years that it's been grazed and farmed, we've seen a decrease in the amount of coral near shore. We call it the inshore reefs, which basically have pretty much disappeared. Fortunately, the majority of the reefs that we dive in is way offshore, so the impact of of the mainland activities is is uh, diluted by the time it gets out there. But there's still some very indirect impacts, or rather very direct impacts, from uh, the, the legacy issues of poor water quality, such as the crown of thorns, which munches on coral wherever they find it. And unfortunately, its life cycle is enhanced by the, the pollution, and, and that's become a, a big threat as well. So I guess the, the threats you're talking about, the best-known ones, would be the poor water quality and the crown of thorns. Now, it's a federal election year this year. As a community-based environmental organisation, what is the Mackay Conservation Group uh, hoping to do uh, in terms of campaigning around the reef in the context of the federal election? Well, that's a very timely question because just before I got on the, on the phone to talk with you, I was out door knocking in the Mackay region. So we very much are in election mode already, even though it's not till July 2nd. And among other things, we're campaigning on behalf of the Great Barrier Reef. And we're simply asking, in this case, we're door knocking, so we're asking individual voters to think about the reef when they vote. But we'll also be going to the uh, candidates and saying, here are, our, here, here are the needs. This is what the reef needs if it's going to survive into the future. And there are a number of points. One, of course, is water quality. We need to improve that. Uh, the bigger ones are, of course, climate change. We like to see people thinking about reducing our greenhouse gas emissions, reducing our dependence on fossil fuels, and transitioning to renewables. Those are our asks to the candidates. And at the end of the day, we'll draw up a scorecard so that everybody in the electorate, the Dawson electorate, which is where I'm from, and it's where Mackay Conservation works, uh, can then vote on whichever candidate they choose, but we'll make sure they're aware of those candidates that are presenting the best policy to protect the reef, and we'll encourage people to vote along those lines. Vote number one for the reef. Tony Fonts from the Mackay Conservation Group. Earth Matters, Australia's weekly environmental justice program for community radio. I'm Tisha Nahern. If you missed any of today's show, you can find our podcasts at 3cr.org.au forward slash Earth Matters. Earth Matters is produced in the studios of 3CR in Melbourne on the lands of the Kulin Nations. You can contact us on 03 9419 earthmatters3cr at gmail.com I hope you can tune in next week for more Earth Matters
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.